Welcome to Conversations of the Strange. Conversations of the Strange. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Conversations of the Strange. It has been a while, and I am thrilled to have one of my new friends join us today. I am talking with the amazing Jody McDaniel Lowry, and she is back to talk about her book, Eula. It is the story of a fascinating woman who was implicated in the murder of two different men, and for one of those deaths, she was sentenced to the electric chair, but her sentence was commuted. We had uh, Jody on earlier talking about her book, Jan, about the life of Janice Buttram and the murder Janice Buttram committed. She was the youngest person sentenced to uh, George's death row, but that too was also commuted to life in prison. A little bit about Jody. Jody is a former educator with a love of history and an ability to write very well about this, and uh, proof of it is in her three books. She resides in the mountains of Northwest Georgia with her husband, Dale, and she is the mother of two children and the grandmother to five. She has a passion for writing and always loves a good mystery. With the book Jan, she exchanged over 50 letters with Janice Buttram herself talking about her life. And Jody also spent 40 plus hours across from Jan talking with her. Her newest book, Junior, is a murder for hire that happened in Murray County, Georgia in November 1980. Now, the book that we're talking about today is the, is the book Eula. Jody learned about Eula Elrod when Jody took a class on local history back in 2006. Her journey took her up rickety ladders, digging through dusty transcripts, and searching through old magazine and newspaper articles, and even through the personal papers of a former, former Georgia governor to uncover Eula's fascinating story. Now, let me just read three quotes that I was doing some research on Eula that people had said about her. Eula's real name in 1941 was Eula Elrod Long Wilson Thompson Scott. And it became, and then you can add, was that Willingham after that? Am I correct? Yes. yes. Okay. Willingham was number five. In Willingham was number five. And... <laughs> She was, and in 1941, a newspaper reporter said that that Eula was the wife of four men, the sweetheart of many others, and the one responsible, the law says, for the murder of two of them, of two men. And also, someone also was quoted as saying, every man that gets mixed up with her is headed for trouble or for death. Jody, thank you so much for uh, being back with us today. It is such a great, uh, such a great privilege to have you back on. Thank you, and I'll, I'll add one more quote to that. Uh, Eula's father actually called her the meanest woman in the county. Holy so. cow! Now, yeah. if I'm real quick, let me let me ask this: Murray County. She was in Murray County, and am I correct? Yes. Okay. Is this near Dalton County, where Janice had her? Um, had her situations. Yeah, Dalton is actually uh, in Whitfield County, and then Murray County is right adjacent to it. 
Okay. I actually live in Murray County. It's about 90 miles north of Atlanta, just to give you a perspective. Okay. I got to ask, between Junior, Eula, and Jan, I would think that the Georgia Tourism Board would say, please stop doing this. We're making <laughs> the people of this county look like they're crazy. Um, actually, I try to focus on older cases just because of that. <laughs> but some of them are just so fascinating that you can't you can't stop once you get started. <laughs> Well, yeah, like I said, your um, beforehand, your story, Eula, or your book, Eula, was a very fascinating case. And um, to see she was involved in two separate murder plots where two men died, and she essentially walked away from it scot-free. Scot-free. Uh, she served seven years for the first one and no time for the second one. And the actual second murder victim was her brother. Right. That was the other thing that was fascinating by that. And it happened within, what was it, like 13 years of the um, first case, if I'm correct. It was, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and she was actually pardoned. So that was the crazy thing. And she gets a clean slate and comes home and gets involved in the same kind of situation again. Right. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because uh, two governors were uh, – we're both involved with her cases and it's absolutely fascinating how um well specifically governor hardman um what he would what he believed in and why he basically said oh you know what let's commute the death penalty from her it's it's crazy so anyway um real quick let's talk about what uh, murray county and um what was the name of the other one where dalton is in Whitfield County. Murray and Whitfield County. Would you say that this is like lower income, predominantly uh, white, um, or would you say like uh, mixed white and African-American people living in the same area? Or uh, Predominantly white. You could probably count the number of black families on one hand. It's very uh, rural, to give you perspective. Um, Number-wise, it's our county has about 42,000 people. So that puts you in perspective of we're a small place. Gotcha. And even yeah. even then, it was an even smaller population because it was much more spread out than it is now as far as population went. Right, right. Now, the first incident that we're going to talk about with Eula involves the murder of a gentleman by the name of Coleman Barnes, and this was in 1927. Uh, in this area, was there a lot of... Um, a lot of the, uh, I guess you could say, moonshining, uh, dealing with the uh, prohibition, was that, uh, would, could we say that that was going on at that time? Uh, yes. Actually, Coleman Osborne was his last name. And they, where he lived oh, was a sorry. place called Ball Ground. It's okay. It's a place called Ball Ground, and it was in the southern end of our county. And even, even now, it's a place where people don't like to go to at night. <laughs> uh, my father, my father-in-law used to say you could see uh, lanterns going through the woods at night. So people, even the even the law, avoided the area. So it was it was a very rough rough area. Are we talking like uh, just your basic Appalachian leave us alone types, like mountain folk, for lack of a better phrase? Like uh, I, I don't want to turn this into like into some sort of like bashing session, but like kind of like what you saw in the movie deliverance type of people. Um, no, not necessarily. Okay. It was more or less the, the woods were good at hiding secrets would be a better way to put it. 
That's where people hid their moonshine stills. People knew that people, you know, made moonshine. That was not a secret. But it was more or less that's the place to hide things from law enforcement or to hide, you know, that's where you kept your secrets, were the woods. Right, right. That type of thing. And, yeah. um, and in, uh, and it was in this world that, uh, Eula Elrod was born, uh, 1904. Am I correct? It was. Yes. Okay. And she was born, her father, uh, he goes by the nickname, is it Ab or Abe? Ab. Ab. Okay. Ab and Alice were her parents. Yes. And, uh, from what I had read about him, uh, both in the newspaper articles and in your book, he was a rather brutal individual, wasn't he? He was. Um, just from what I've read, he was probably a typical abuser of some sort. And part of that comes from that's just saying sometimes that comes from the aspect of being in poverty. You know, there's there seems to be no way out of things. It's, it's almost like a, a character trait of sorts. Right, right. Lack of education, that kind of thing. Right. So basically it's kind of one of these things where it's sort of like we don't have enough money. Uh, to handle things. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I'm very concerned. So uh, yeah. I'm going to just do something to inebriate my feelings and my fears and forget about what's going to happen tomorrow, which yeah. is, uh, which this is not said from a perspective of, um, of a highbrow looking down, but from uh, anybody that's dealt with addiction can understand where these people are coming from type of attitude. Definitely. And, yeah. and you're talking about you're throwing in the Great Depression in on top of that. So not yeah. only dealing with poverty, you're dealing with, you know, a whole society of, of you know, lack of funds. and. Right, right. And, yeah, this was also from what I was when, – when I was reading it, there was uh, – when I was reading the articles and stuff, there was actually a mention of Herbert Hoover – and uh, him trying to figure out where they were going to have the Republican National Convention and everything. And that was kind of interesting to see that going on. It's like, oh, wow, this is in the days before FDR, World War II, all of that. So, yeah. so now, um, in when uh, Eula is 15 years old, she runs off with a guy by the name of, let me make sure I get his name right, uh, Long. Am I correct? Harvey Long. Yes, Harvey Long. Yeah, Harvard. Yes. And, and her uh, father, they hid, they hid that marriage. They didn't stay married very long. And uh, her father actually, when he found out, pretty much beat her and brought her back home. I think she was looking for a way out of a small town, and you know, Harv came along, offered her, offered her a way, a ticket out, but the marriage didn't last very long at all. Yeah, from what I remember reading, and if anybody has a chance to, and if you have access to newspapers.com, there is an absolutely fascinating article about her centered in the Atlanta Constitution, August 17th, 1941. And uh, and it just goes on to describe what her life was like and hear what she had to say. And um, you said something about her at the beginning of your book, and... uh, you used a modern term, and I was wondering if you could talk about that very briefly. Um, did I call her a, a psychopath? Yes. A okay, a psychopath. I compare, when I teach a class about her, I actually compare her to people like uh, Jody Aris and any of those people that put their feelings and their emotions above anybody else's. They're very self-centered, very ego-centered. 
and Eula was very much that. She didn't care what the ripple effect was or who it affected or what it did as long as she was in the middle and she was in the limelight. That pretty much was what she thrived on. Right. Right. I was. It's funny you should mention that because with everything that's been going on, I actually wanted to ask you if it would be fair to compare her to Marjorie Deal Armstrong. I don't know if you're familiar with that case. Um, she like she was involved with the um, uh, 2003 murder of Brian Wells, who was in uh, Pennsylvania. He was a pizza delivery guy that had a um, a bomb handcuffed to his neck and it exploded and it killed him. And when uh, there's a really fascinating documentary on Netflix called evil genius, it's a four part documentary. And last night my wife and I just finished watching it and we were just mesmerized by it. And a lot of what I was reading about Eula reminded me of Marjorie deal Armstrong. And if you were familiar with the case, I was wondering if, if the two ladies could be compared together. Um, Although I'm not familiar with it, it, it sounds like it just from the description. Eula very much put herself, um, she liked to place all the blame on everybody else. Nothing was her fault. Right. So. Right. And that's, yeah, that's essentially what, what did this, what Marjorie did. Marjorie was involved with killing a couple of people and, or killing, I think her husband and her ex-boyfriend and she flat out admitted, yeah, I did it, but, and I'm sorry it happened, but blah, blah, blah. And it, if, if you get a chance to, it was a very fascinating documentary. Uh, and if you have Netflix, it's really worth your time to watch. Sure. I'll definitely have to add it to my list. <laughs> gotcha. And now how about this? When you watch it, do you want to come back on and talk about it? Uh, sure. Why not? Yeah, why not? He'll <laughs> give it a, give us another excuse to hang out. Yeah. So, all right. So anyway, so when you're, um, so it was in 1927, Eula then finally finds someone that she does marry, a guy by the name of Clifford Thompson. And was he friends with another African-American man named Jim Hugh Moss? Or was, or was Jim Hugh Moss just kind of, he was just brought into the situation at the last minute? Uh, Jim Hugh Moss and Cliff Thompson were actually childhood friends. They sort of grew up together in the same small town in Tennessee. But I, I want to back up just a little bit. There sure, was sure. husband in between Harv Long and Cliff Thompson. Cliff Thompson was actually husband number three at the age of 23. So she went through husbands pretty quickly. Um, wow. She actually had an affair with a married man in between Harv and Cliff Thompson that she called the man Happy Brown. And it was very interesting that at 16 years old, she crosses state lines just to venture out on her own. And she runs into this married man. And so she's very free-willing with her affection, I guess is a nice way to put it. Right, um, okay. And she actually, she actually went as far as to ask Happy Brown's wife, for a divorce. She, she wanted him to divorce her husband. And the wife was very uh, open-minded for the times, and she basically said, um, no, no, you can sleep with him as much as you want to, but no, he's mine. So oh, wow. I found that very interesting. That Eula did, yeah, Eula did not mind um, sharing her affections with others. And she was actually arrested around the time of her marriage to Cliff Thompson for running house of ill repute, is what they called it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, because I was going to say, based on what, even when you read that article about her, it seemed like um, 
when the reporter said the wife of four men, the sweetheart of many others, it was basically like a yeah. really nice way of saying this woman is the town bus. Everybody's getting a ride type of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, Cliff Thompson was part of the pyramid scheme with Happy Brown. That's probably how they came in contact with each other. Was Happy Brown was a known um, revenue of sorts. And he okay. basically had a pyramid of, of men who worked for him. And Cliff Thompson was part of that trickle-down effect. So that's right. more than likely how their paths crossed. Right, right. So she ends up meeting him. They, whatever the equivalent of her falling in love is, uh, they yeah. fall in love and um, get married, and and eventually, how does Coleman Osborne fit into this whole situation? Like, well, like was he at the wrong place at the wrong time type of thing? Because it seemed like that they were trying, uh, from what I was reading, that they were trying to tra- they were doing some traveling, and Jim Hugh Moss was with them, and he said, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna." To like, like he, I remember reading he stole a couple of guys' guitars, and then he was at the same place where um, I think Osborne had like a gas station or something, and they tried to wake uh, him up. Yeah, Osborne actually had a um, a little mom and pop kind of store. It's what they would be like, and we basically had those scattered all over the county because we didn't have, you know, nobody ever heard anything of Walmart's like we do now, or you know, right. And these were established all over the county, and basically it was a one-stop shop. Not only could you buy groceries, you could buy small hardware items, you could buy seeds, you know, different things. And and actually, Coleman lived not far from where Gila grew up. So he knew knew her family, not necessarily her by sight. But Gila and Cliff had actually been running moonshine in between Benton, Tennessee, where they were, and Kennesaw. And, okay. and so Coleman's store was about halfway in between. And right. that was a very interesting situation because he was he was rather, I would say, well off for the time period as far as his, his store did a good business. And I don't know that he was necessarily seen to be a target. It just happened to be wrong place, wrong time. Mm. Yeah, and I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that I think he – knew who killed him and there's been some rumors that it might not even have been Eula and them at all right yeah because I yeah. Yeah, without getting too much it does mention sure. in the book that um, someone else claimed to have done it but that could not be corroborated yeah. or something right so right so yeah it's, it's very interesting as far as how that story plays out as, as far as a murder scene goes they really made a lot of um you can tell it was a very small town law enforcement as far as examination of the scenes and and how the murder played out itself. But just just a tidbit of when he went to the store that night, the store and his house were right next door to each other. And he actually answered a call by somebody coming to his, his bedroom window and asking for gas. And that was typical back then of people, you know, if you ran out of gas at night, you, you would find the nearest house, you know, and knock right. on the door and... And and that was sort of the situation. But according, his wife heard his last voice, and the words he said was you. And I've I've always taught when I teach the class on Mila is to me I take you as being he knew this person. Yeah, like hey, what are you doing here? Not necessarily like 
you love type of thing. Okay. So, yeah. so basically we're, it, it's a dark, dark night, uh, gas station shop house. Um, and then they showed up and how is it because he used the word you, is that how Eula and, and, um, her husband and, and Jim Hugh Moss got all implicated in that? Um, no, it's, it's very interesting. There was a gentleman that, um, investigated the crime and he was actually not a police officer at all. He was a deputy. He was not the sheriff and his name was Butler. And he gives this elaborate story in one of these detective magazines from the time of how he actually followed their tire, these tire tracks on a dirt road from Coleman Osborne's store all the way to Benton, Tennessee. And you're looking at, this is probably a 35-mile distance. But yet he claims he could follow these specific tire tracks that entire distance. He gets to this town, which is a, a small town, and goes to see the sheriff's deputy, and the sheriff says, well, I can tell you whose car these tires belong to. And it, it becomes very elaborate. <laughs> the right. whole thing that you're just sort of sitting there with open mouth going, really? You know, <laughs> you know the right. tires that this belongs to, this belongs to, and the people this belongs to. So it's, yeah. Right. Yeah, you can almost see somebody in like a trench coat and a, yeah. and a magnifying glass just walking along the road for 35 miles. Um, yeah. Let me jump back. How was um, Osborne murdered? Uh, he was shot. And okay. basically the shot entered his, his side and it happened to lodge close to the heart. So he basically bled to death. Right, right, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, somebody in that time is, they get shot like that. It's not like they're going to be rushed to a nearest hospital okay. where where uh, x-rays and other stuff are able to kick in. Gotcha. All right. right. So, so because of all of this, now, during the investigation, they get arrested, and during the arrest and everything, it seems like that, that Eula was able to throw her, what kind of, well, Eula threw her husband and Jim under the bus. Am I correct? Basically saying like, she was like, oh, they stopped. And I think they might've done that or something like that. Yeah. She actually gave three different testimonies as to what her version of the night's events were. And and every time she never puts herself at the murder scene. Again, she goes back to that, you know, narcissist behavior of hers is, you know, how dare you even look at me? It's got it's got to be the two men I was with. Right, right. Actually, you know what? Speaking of narcissism, let me let me see if I um if I can read a quote. I want to jump back to her first husband, and this was from the Atlantic, or the Atlanta Constitution, from August seventeenth, nineteen forty-one, and she says, um, "If I had stayed with." Long, Harv Long, the man I married first. If I had stayed with him and had about 20 kids, I wouldn't have turned out like like I did. I've always loved kids. If I had some of my own, I don't believe I'd ever wanted anything else. And there was another quote that I thought was really telling about her where she actually said if Harv had come and gotten her. And 
basically said, you need to be, come be with me. Um, and if you, and if he had not come and gotten me, I would not have done all the stuff that I have done. So she kind of in a weird way. Okay, here it is. I told Harv, if you had took, took with me, um, if you had took a wife with me, I'm, to me and whooped me good and made me come home with you like a good wife. I'd never been in this mess now. And obviously there's a whole lot of problematic of what she said there, basically saying if her husband had come and slapped her around and said, you're coming home with me to be my wife, then she would have still been married to Harv and she wouldn't have uh, been involved with the murder of Osborne or been involved with the murder of her brother. And she would have had like, several kids and that's all she would have been was a good mother and she's kind of it's fascinating that she kind of is essentially saying this is harb's fault for not coming and demanding i go be his wife um and again when i read the part where he said if he had where she said if he had not whooped me good and made me come home with him holy cow <laughs> i'm not even yeah. gonna even touch that with the yeah. <laughs> that, that's just uh that's and, and just thank a, goodness I, I think that just goes to show it, it, she's trying to blame somebody else for her actions. Yes. Well, if you hadn't done this or if you hadn't done that, and I tell people, I said, thank goodness there was never children involved. You know, I, yeah. I see four marriages, five marriages, but never divorce papers in between them. I never found the first set of divorce papers to see any of these marriages dissolve. And right. I've never seen children either. So I'm thinking, obviously, somebody was looking out after her, looking out, you know that that didn't happen because I can only imagine what else could have occurred. Right. Right. And, um, and then ultimately, and I want to see if I can get the, get the time right. Was it in 1928? Yeah, it was, uh, September. It was September. Uh, no, it was in 1928 that both Clifford and, uh, Jim Hugh Moss were both uh, executed in the electric chair. They were. Yes, yeah. it's, a, it's a very sad story because it ended up, I mean, these were these were two innocent men, and they basically just caught, caught up in her, her web of deceit and lies and everything else. And, I mean, Jim Humals was actually a, a pitcher for the Negro Baseball Leagues. And right. And a week away from going back to spring camp, you know, to play baseball again, and all this happened. So you can imagine, you know, he had he left behind a wife and family, right? And did and did nothing. He claimed right. even until the very end that he was he was innocent. Right, but from what I was reading, um, also in the Atlanta Journal, when I was reading the uh, story of their execution, it was very fascinating uh, that the reporter himself was like, you know what? No matter what these guys did, they faced their death braver than anybody I've ever seen. Yeah. And uh, they basically came in and just were like, hey, there's nothing I can do about it. We've done everything we can or I've done everything I can or wanted to. So this is just going to happen. This is just going to have to happen. And they were both very much like, uh, hey, we get to go. We're, we're basically going to go to the other side and we're going to go see see Jesus was kind of what their attitude was. Yeah, and, and he was Thompson family even took up for you a when we start talking about the governor, you'll find that even Cliff Thompson's parents came to her aid then. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Because, yeah. that see, that's the other thing, like, with all of this. 
was she how did she get involved with the governor like what was it about this case that made him go all right um i'm not gonna um i'm not gonna step in the middle middle of the judgment and the execution of moss and thompson however i am going to stop her from being executed what was it about her that he said you know what i am going to get involved with this let me talk here or let me get involved with this um actually the governor his name was lamar hardeman and he was a physician before he was the governor of georgia okay he had a a hobby and it was a pseudoscience and it was called phrenology right and basically what phrenology is, is imagine you're a skull, a head, and it's divided like grass paper is into grids. And every place you see a grid, there is an emotion or a, tr- or a talent, like joy, poetry, uh, envy, jealousy. Well, according to phrenology, whatever trait that you use the most of, let's say you're a musician and you, you know, music is your talent and your forte then whatever, where that square is, there's going to develop a bump there because that's the square that involves music. So that's going to be the part of the brain you use the most. Okay. Now, <laughs> I, I laugh when I teach that because I always try to find a gentleman with a bald head in the room. And I'll say, <laughs> can I borrow your head for just a moment? And I'll explain about phrenology. And you'll see people in the back or just all over the room reach their hand up and start rubbing little spots on their head saying, hmm, you know, does this, does this connect to me? So the governor actually decided he was going to um, examine Eula to see if she had the capability of being a murderer or not. So imagine, imagine Mindhunters now on Netflix. You know, when right. they go in and do this behavioral science, that was his version of behavioral science is, I'm going to go run my fingers through her hair. <laughs> and and it, there was an article in the Atlanta paper of he went into her jail cell, and here are all these reporters lined up outside the jail cell waiting on his response. So he walks in with charts and graphs and, and starts measuring her head and making all these notations and then comes out and says, well, I don't think she's a killer, but these other two men obviously are. Oh, and wow. I'm thinking, you have got to be kidding me. I actually came across papers in his personal papers where he had drawn an image of her head, just a side view, and sent it to a doctor in Texas to get a second opinion that was also a phrenologist of, you know, is she, right. is she really a murderer or not? And I'm thinking, I can't even imagine. I said, picture our governor now, Governor Kemp, walking into a, a murderer's <laughs> cell and saying, hey, can I run my fingers through your hair? <laughs> I, I don't think you would make Poke it at your head a little oh, bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me rub on your head just a little bit. See <laughs> something's wrong with you. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, yeah, that's what cut her off. <laughs> right. Do you do you um do you think that there was any kind of um I don't know like like any sort of sort of connection between the two of them? Like, did the governor look at her as boy, she's really pretty, I wish she were my girlfriend, or she reminds me of my daughter, reminds me of my niece, like, anything like that, do you think that could have been, that could have been in her Um, favor, I I guess? I I would say so. Um, I'll I'll tell you a little story that they like to tell about her that I mentioned in the book. Um, When she was sent to Fulton County to prison, you know, she already had this reputation of being very um, active in her lifestyle, 
Right. And when she got on the train to leave town, she people came out to see her off on the train. Because, I mean, here she is, she's going off to be sent off to die, and this has been this media circus that has played out. So it was almost like, you know, seeing somebody off to war. Let's go see them off at the station. And the two, the sheriff and his deputy escorted her off. Well, as she's standing on the platform and all these people are standing around, she hacks her dress and says, this is the best that some of you will ever miss out on, and drops her dress and gets on the train. So, <laughs> that just gives you a hint of what she was, what she was like. And I sort of, I, I think about, you know, when you read a book and you think of a mental picture of the character you're reading about based on what you're writing, you know, you sort of have this mental picture, well, I think they must look like this. Right. And I had that kind of mental picture when it came to Eula because I had never seen her in the flesh. I had seen a couple of photographs. But when I went into Atlanta and delved into the governor's papers, there was her mugshot. That was the very first thing I saw. And it gave a physical description of her. And it told her height and her weight and her occupation. She said that she was a, a maid, I think, a domestic and then it said physical descriptions. You know, that's usually where they list things like tattoos or identifying marks. And then it said blue, uh, brown hair, brown eyes, teeth, hardly any. And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> that was not what I, I had thought. But obviously she seemed to have a way with people. She could be very coy and very flirtatious. Right. So I think she probably ate up the visitor, you know, the governor coming to see her. Right. Oh, that's that's crazy. So so basically the governor then says, all right, um, we're going to just commute her to life in prison, which which makes a lot of sense now. But the, she ended up serving seven years. Right. Yeah. OK. Yeah, that's actually what a last sentence was in Georgia then was seven years. Yeah. <laughs> OK. okay. How was how that seven years? Um. Basically, that in Georgia, the times have changed as to what a life sentence is considered. It's right. not the rest of your natural life. It's, it's, a, it's a time of before you can petition to get out of, of jail, out of prison. And, and murder then was you served seven years and then you could petition to get out. Well, okay. instead, she actually served the time, but then she got a bonus on top of that. The very next governor after Hardiman happened to be um, Talmadge, if I Talmadge, yeah. And Talmadge says, "Oh, I'm going to give you one even better than that. I'm going to pardon you. So not only are you getting out of jail, you're getting a clean record." And he said, "But the only thing I ask is that you go back to you know your little town of Chatsworth and you stay out of trouble." So yeah, we'll see how well that works. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So. So basically, she goes back, she meets, um, at this point in time, I want to make sure I get the names right, she meets a guy by the name of Scott, and it seems like also that uh, she and her family uh, kind of have a bit of a falling out in that time, too. That, um, actually, she had met Scott years ago. She had actually met Scott right after she um, left Harvlong. She met Virgil Scott at her aunt's house, and Virgil okay. actually told her, she said, uh, he said, if you want to cross state lines into Tennessee, you'll be divorced. And he said, I'll meet you up there, and we'll get together. Well, instead, she showed up, and he didn't. He chickened out. Oh, wow. So, yeah, their paths crossed again when she came back to Georgia 
and her brother, one of her brothers was on trial for uh, bootlegging. And her okay. father says, well, why don't you go visit one of the jurors and see if you can't sway their vote to help your brother out. And it just oh. so happened that juror was Virgil Scott. So he became husband number four. Oh, and wow. Of course, he forgot to, of course he forgot to tell her they had a wife and kids. And so that <laughs> that was thrown into the mix. Yeah. Oh, oh, so and then in that time, let me see. I just want to double check with my notes. Um, Walker, uh, her, she had a brother, Walker, and obviously yeah. she had a bit of a falling out with her family. And because Walker did. was Walker, the oldest son, or was he just kind of like the caregiver for his parents at this point? Uh, I in 1941, I should say. I believe he was the oldest, and actually, he lived next door to them. He and his wife and children lived right next door to Abinalis. And so I think he probably took it upon himself to say, it's my job to look after them, because they were starting to get on an age a little bit. And he basically had told Eula not to come around. He says, when you come around, there's problems, and mom and dad don't need that kind of stress in their lives, so you need to find someplace else to be. Right. Right. And then, uh, and then, they they came around one day because, according to her, uh, according to her, she let's see, uh, let me see if I can get this right. Um, according to her, she had some household items she wanted to give to her. Uh, this was on June second, nineteen forty-one. She had some bundle of household goods she wanted to give to her mom, and then Walker basically ran her off along with Virgil Scott and Kern. Uh, Kermit Pritchett. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So ran them off, but then they came back around and Walker came out and started arguing with her. And I believe, uh, let me see. Uh, it was Pritchett that would fought with Walker, but then Scott jumped out from behind and stabbed or, and started stabbing Walker, if I'm correct. Yeah. Or he, whole, he was hiding the in the whole... bushes or something. Yeah. The whole description of that was very confusing as to figure out who was playing what part. And it became even more confusing when you read the newspaper article about it. Because the headline says, um, family comes to town to testify against one of their own. So Ab and Alice came to town to testify against Eula, plus a couple of her, sister, a couple of her brothers and a sister-in-law, Walker's wife. And their stories were very crossed up because when... Ab was questioning her own father. They said, well, did did Walker have a gun that day? And he said, well, I don't know. And then they said, well, did he have a knife? And he said, I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. He said, I'm just trying to make sure I say the right thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, in, in all deference to him, coach. I will say this, though. In all, de- in all deference to uh Ab there, the last person that was involved with Eula and said the wrong thing, two guys ended up getting the electric chair. So I can understand his hesitancy about that. Yeah. And it was a very unusual situation, too, because, I mean, it's family against family. And you you don't want to tear your family apart. Now, I did, there's something that you don't find in the book, but later on, when I had my first book signing with Eula, it was at a historical hotel in our town, and it was actually the town where the jurors stayed during her first trial. And there was a lot of her family members came out, and a woman came up to me, and she said, um, 
there's a 92-year-old lady that's about to come in and meet you and tell you a story, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm looking forward to it, a kiss. And this little tiny lady came in, and she said, she told me her name, and she said, I'm Walker Elrod's daughter. And she said, I was there the day my dad was killed. And, I, oh. and, my, and my mouth just fell open. And I said, oh. And she proceeded to tell me, she said, my mother actually took us across the road and hit us in the woods because we were afraid you would come after us. Because, of course, she had a reputation of sorts, you know, of, right. of things that happened. And she she seemed to see most of it play out. But I'm thinking, I can't even imagine being five years old and watching your parent lose their life. You know, oh, to somebody, unbelievable. To somebody that you know. Yeah, yeah. So, did, yeah. Yeah, did Walker's daughter have a good life? Uh, she did, and it was, I mean, she, it, what got me was how vivid her memory was of those actions playing out. Oh. And then she, I had another member come up to me, another person, and say, you know, I lived right down the street from him, and she said, I was a, a kid, and she said the next morning I went to the creek, and there was Alice at the creek walking Walker's shirt. And she said you could just see the red go down the creek past it because oh, they were wow. washing the blood out of the shirt from being stabbed the day before. So it, it was a small town, and especially a small community, so that kind of thing traveled fast. Right, you know. right. Now, was anybody, like, what ultimately happened? Because we know that Eula, and I'm going to just skip this part, Eula was not found guilty or for the, or she wasn't even on trial for it, I don't think. But what ultimately happened with, um, actually, that's not true, because at this point in time, she ends up going to jail. And what was fascinating is where she ended up, she was in the jail cell that was the old hanging room. Actually, that was from the first trial that she was there in the old hanging room. Oh, well, okay. The trial, yeah, the second trial, she actually served no time at all. She was found guilty, and Virgil Scott served time. He served, I think, seven years again. But she, I could find no record at all that she ever served prison time for her brother's murder. Uh, the only thing I was able to find is that a social worker came to get her and took her to Atlanta. So... I'm assuming they either ran her out of town or she might have gone to a mental institution of sorts to serve out some time, but she never served time in a prison setting. Okay. All right. I got a weird question because I wouldn't know this. What was the connection between Governor Hardman and Governor Talmadge? Because the reason why I'm asking is I'm wondering if Talmadge was trying to if he had a good reputation, if he had a good relationship with Hardman, and now all of a sudden Eula pops up, and or him giving her a pardon, this is going to make him look really bad, if I'm correct. So, would he would, would some would he have stepped in and said, uh, no, let's not do anything, or or would she have or like would somebody else do you think might have said you know what let's not make the previous governor look bad or let's not make somebody look bad why don't we just kind of step away from this it's hard to tell because the only mention of anything about her pardon was an article in the atlanta paper 
and it basically mentioned the five people he had pardoned, and she was in that list. And they gave no description of the crimes they committed, you know, why they were being pardoned. But I, I would think that, you know, who wants to know of a governor that that did what Hardiman did as far as examining her head and making all those assumptions? I would say he was probably trying to just stay in good graces. And Talmadge right. just said, you know, as, as a friend thing, let me just sort of make these go away. Right, and, and right. And if they go away, then it's not going to be, you know, on his record still. Right. Because not to be silly about it, because, like, essentially what you've got is almost the, um, to go back in time, um, you got what happened with George H.W. Uh, Bush and Mike Dukakis back in 1988 when uh, the whole Willie Horton thing, uh, where Dukakis said, yeah, I'll let Willie Horton out for the weekend. And then Willie Horton went and murdered somebody. And uh, Dukakis looked really dumb with that. And more or less, that was a lot of people believe that that was because Bush dragged that out. That was the very thing that got uh, that got him elected against Mike Dukakis. So it's somebody like that could get uh, that, that could harm them politically, I guess. Right. In the and, long and run. Then, Hardiman was in his 80s, I think, late 70s, early 80s. So it's probably the kind of situation, too, of, you know, He's getting older in age. He's going back to his hometown, I'm sure, to just live out his life. Let's just make things easier. If we pardon these people, then their stories aren't going to come up again to to look bad on him. So I, right. I, I would think it was some kind of nod like that of, of, of helping a friend, so to speak. Right, right, exactly. So so after after the trial, um, and, and you did say that uh, both – Virgil Scott and uh, Kermit Pritchett. Uh, did, no, Pritchett, I believe, was acquitted. Am I correct? He was. He didn't. Uh, he managed to get off and didn't serve any time at all. Okay, gotcha. I don't think. I don't think there really was enough evidence to prove he was. He just happened to be there as far as wrong time, wrong place, but he wasn't. He wasn't involved as far as the killing went. Right. 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 So, and then they can't really say that, um, that Virgil Scott had murder, had the intent on murder. It was kind of like there was a fight and he was just more or less trying to stick up for a friend type of thing. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it was, I've talked to family members since then of, of Virgil's that basically said, um, he was known to sort of have an, an alcohol problem of sorts and that probably his relationship with Eula and mixed with a little alcohol, that can sometimes give you liquid courage, as they say. Right, right. And, and, and they seem to have the opinion that, you know, the two mixed together was sort of a, a bad combination. Right. So, and then, um, I guess, and then kind of wrapping this up, Eula then... She does she divorce Scott or or what how or how does that end or do do you know? Um, I, I never find I never find divorce papers on any of them. <sighs> I do know that she ended up meeting um, Willingham a little later on in life, and I'm not sure exactly how they did meet. I know that she ended up around Atlanta for a little while living, and then she ended up in Mobile with Willingham, and right. they were married probably 20 years or more. And it was interesting that I ran, I interviewed two of her nieces that lived here in town, and she said, you know, we had no idea 
that our aunt had been involved in a murder. She said, we would go down and spend the summers with her in Mobile. And, you know, we had no idea that she had this dark side, these things that had happened to her. Because, I mean, back then, it was the kind of situation, I remember as a kid, if something came up that your parents didn't want for you to hear, they'd say, well, oh, why don't you go play or go do this or go do that? And they would have their adult conversations. And right. I, I think that's sort of how that information had been passed along was the kids didn't know about it because it wasn't talked about in front of them. Right. And, and, we, and we talked a lot about Willingham and how, you know, maybe he was just the right person at the right time, that maybe he was finally somebody that should have been like Carl Long was, that maybe he just respected her and, and truly did love her. Because, like I said, they, they were together 20-something years. Mm. And, and then ultimately the yeah go ahead right right and then i was going to say when she was and then um and then she spent the last few years of her life in a um in a nursing home and yeah. uh and what and it was in 1980 that uh she uh succumbed to a heart disease if i'm correct yeah yeah she lived to be in her late 70s and that's another one of those situations we talked about how um what a vicarious life she lived and how walking on the wild side. And it was after the book came out that I tended to run into more people that could tell me Eula stories. And I ran into another niece, and always the stories seemed to come to, um, I bet I could tell you something about Eula that you didn't know. And I was like, oh, you probably can. And I said, nothing would surprise me at this point. Right. And, and I met a, an, another niece, and she said, you know, my mom used to take me to visit Eula in the nursing home. And she said, I found out then that Eula was covered in tattoos. And the reason I saw this is my mother, I guess, tilted Eula up on her side and her her gown fell open. And she said her back was covered in tattoos. And she said, my mother got on to me for staring, because that's what children do when they see something they're not used to seeing. And she said, you know, I wish to this day I had looked to see, paid more attention to what they were. But I'm thinking, you know, here's this woman that's getting tattoos in the 20s and 30s when it was not not the norm for a woman right. to get tattoos. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. As you, um, with the writing process of this book, did you find yourself comparing, or I should say, let me jump to Jan's book. Um, when you were doing the book on Janice uh, Buttram, did you find yourself comparing her to Eula? Because they both have very unique situ, uh, they are very unique, but there's a lot of commonalities between the two of them. Yeah, I, I think the commonalities came from their childhoods were not great. They were both in situations where there was neglect, there was poverty, there was um, abuse of some sort growing up, and whether it was physical or sexual. But then you also get to that point as they got to closer to adulthood, I think their actions were attention-seeking actions. They both were in situations to where they used right. their sexuality to get what they wanted to. And so I think it came to, I don't know if that was survival mode, you know, whether it was this is how I'll get through life, or whether it was I figured out this is a tool to get what I want. Right, right. And then ultimately, though, but what's fascinating is, is that Eula actually was pardoned and lived the rest of her life in, well, 
as a free person, whereas Jan is still currently yeah. in jail for the murder she committed. Yes. Yeah, it, it's very interesting the, the way the two came out. And I don't know if, if maturity with Eula, whether I think what saved her is leaving town, leaving a small town. Right. Because I, I don't know if people realize that, I mean, I've grown up in, in Chatsworth my entire life. So part of being in a small town is everybody knows everybody. And and word travels quickly in a small town as to when things play out like this, when a murder happens or when a, you know, a, a tantalizing event happens. And I think with Eula, she got that opportunity to, to leave town and walk away from it. And mm. maybe being able to walk away from it and being out of the limelight, she could have a sense of normalcy. But with Jan, it was sort of totally different. It was like the limelight never went away. And, mm. and with her, you throw in the fact that it's, you know, 60 years later, well, 40, 1980 versus 1927, then you're throwing in the digital age, you're throwing in TV, you know, so hers was much more publicized. Right. She really never had that chance of stepping out of the spotlight. I mean, with her, you can see her, a TV episode about her of TV killers, you know, so she's chance to walk away right right whereas with okay. with uh jan you pretty much yeah she she is what she is right now so in, yeah. in the situation that she's in well jody i can't even begin to thank you again for your uh time and it was so great talking to you again i really have enjoyed our conversation it was just so fascinating to hear about this book and uh your books are available on amazon and uh, yeah, if you I'm go, to, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say that your books, Jan, Junior, and Eula, are on Amazon, and they're easily downloadable. And we're going to have links to all of them, or at least to your website. Uh, but we will have a link to Eula, and we will have a link to your website in the show notes, and on our Facebook page, and on our website, so that people can see it. That sounds great. Thank you again for you know just giving me the time to share her story. It's 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 probably near and dear to my heart because it was the first one I I wrote. So she's always been a little fascinating to me. Right, right. Yeah, every like writers always remember their first books. It's that type of thing. Yeah. Like the first story that really really uh, catches their attention. Um, I should ask, what are you working on right now? Uh, basically, I've been I've been researching a couple of different topics with with COVID my access has been cut off to to public records because that's usually what I use is transcripts and you know newspaper articles and first-hand accounts so my interactions have been cut down a little but I've, I've been doing some looking at research ideas or story ideas I'll say but I haven't okay. pinpointed one that piqued my interest as much as these have <laughs> Gotcha. All right well I'm going to hold you to this as well when you uh, get get a new interest in your you're going to let us know and we're going to have to have you back on. Sounds great. Yeah. We're going to have to have you on for junior. Yep. Yeah. We got junior next. So yeah. Yeah. And also, like I said, at the same time, I'd love to have you on if, uh, just to talk about the, um, the story of, uh, evil genius about, um, Marjorie deal Armstrong and the, the murder of Brian Wells. Cause I think there are a lot of similarities between her story and Eula's story. I think you would find. Okay. I'll be happy to look into it and let's, let's have a conversation again. 
Yeah, I enjoy our conversations of our, our mindset seem to be quite the same. Exactly, exactly. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being patient with uh, Conversations of the Strange. We had a couple of technical issues in the last month, and then the day job kicked back in, and then COVID and all kinds of other things just kind of came out of the woodwork. So I am glad to be back, and uh, I want to, again, I'm glad to be back with my buddy Jody McDaniel-Lowry. Uh, we will have links to her website. You can find her very easily. She's on Facebook. She has a great um uh, website. She has a great Facebook page and uh, check out her stuff on uh, Kindle and uh, you will enjoy it. And everyone, thank you very much and have a great day. Welcome to Conversations of the Strange. Conversations of the Strange.